Hello and welcome back to the Sinobabble podcast. This is the first episode in another short series I'll be doing about the Hong Kong protests. I don't know how many episodes there'll be yet, but there's at least two in the works so far and they'll be coming out over the next couple of weeks. If you want to get some background on the protests starting from June of last year, you can go back and listen to the four episode mini series I did on that portion of the protests, which includes a background to Hong Kong mainland relations, a full overview of the summer until early July, and an interview with a protester following the storming of the Legislative Council. It doesn't go into the protests as they continued into August, uh, nor does it cover the takeover of university campuses and the shutting down of the airport, but I'm going to assume that if you're listening to this podcast, then you're already familiar with those events. Though there were some protests over the winter period, including just after New Year, The outbreak of the coronavirus and the escalation of the virus into a global pandemic naturally brought the movement to a screeching halt. Hong Kongers took early action to fight the outbreak, limiting social contact, closing schools and most businesses, instituting work-from-home policies and making the wearing of masks mandatory in most buildings. Even now, the majority of people still wear face masks when out and about, except when exercising and restaurants retain barriers between tables to reduce social contact, though most are still running at full capacity. As such, Hong Kong has suffered only four deaths, and the restrictions on social contact are easing. Now, grievances both old and new are flaring up once again. If you cast your mind back to last year, you'll remember that the protests initially broke out due to the planned introduction of the extradition law, which would essentially bring Hong Kong under the same legal jurisdiction of China when it came to extraditing those who had committed crimes in or against China and the Chinese state. The main argument of the protesters was that this law was a violation of the Hong Kong Basic Law, a kind of mini-constitution that guarantees a semi-independent status for Hong Kong until full reunification with the mainland in 2047. The new protests are on a new issue, but they fall into the same category as an affront to the one country, two systems policy. Two things have happened to stoke the flames of new protests. The first was the announcement of the National Security Law, which was passed by the Chinese government on May 21st, 2020. Although it's only in its draft stage, it now passes on to the Standing Committee of the CCP, which is unlikely to do anything but flesh it out and sort of add more clauses to it, as the presiding members of this Standing Committee were probably the ones who came up with the law in the first place. Currently, what we know is that the law will criminalise secession, subversion of the central government, terrorism and interference from outside parties or governments in China's internal affairs. This situation isn't exactly new, as a similar national security bill was proposed in 2003. This law was slightly different, it seems like it was a bit more specific, including the removal of time limits for the prosecution of offences, the power of detention without warrant in cases of suspected treason or sedition, and the banning of certain organisations if they're deemed a threat to national security. It's not clear whether the current law will contain similar clauses, but in their general framework, they're basically the same thing. After a protest in July of 2003, the bill was shelved, but it's now resurfaced amid concerns over national security following the protests of 2019 and early 2020. In other words, the CCP is using the Hong Kong protests of last year 
to push for this national security bill, which is something that they've been trying to push in Hong Kong for over a decade. The second thing to happen was the announcement of the national anthem law, which was due to be debated in Parliament on Thursday the 28th of May. This bill would criminalise any disrespect to the Chinese national anthem, March of the Volunteers. The bill was actually passed on the mainland in 2017, and was due to be passed in Hong Kong in 2019, but was understandably held up by the much bigger issues surrounding the extradition law. That's what happens when you try to do too many things at once. The basic outline of the law is that if you perform the national anthem in a derogatory manner, for example by changing the lyrics or something like that, you could be fined 50,000 Hong Kong dollars, which is around 5,000 pounds, and jailed for up to three years. Naturally, people felt that this was a bit excessive, and then they started protesting. I've seen in a couple of news outlets that the protests have been framed as being against the national anthem law. From what I know, this is partly true, but it sort of covers up the more recent developments about the national security law. I'm not an expert, nor am I on the front lines of the protests, but from what I've gathered from most social media posts from Hong Kongers, as well as the majority of news outlets, the protests are seemingly about both things, and more generally just about freedom and democracy of Hong Kong, and the future prospects of the one country, two systems policy. On to the protests themselves. The drama kicked off a little before the national security law was publicly announced. On Sunday the 10th of May, there was a pro-democracy protest held in malls throughout Mong Kok area, which also spilled out onto the streets. Around 230 people were arrested, some of whom were apparently not even participating in the illegal gathering, but the police took the liberty to round up any and everybody within the cordon that they had set up, based on the rule that gatherings of more than eight people have been banned to curtail the spread of the coronavirus. The police have adopted a zero-tolerance policy towards large-scale gatherings, and are becoming more proactive, having learnt from last year, when they quickly lost control over several university campuses. People between the ages of 12 and 56 were arrested on Mother's Day, and several people were hospitalised following clashes with the police, including a journalist who was reportedly choked towards the end of the evening. A pro-democracy legislator, Roy Kwong, of the Democratic Party, was hospitalised after police pinned him to the ground and knelt on his head. It seems that we can no longer expect any sort of patience or moderation from the Hong Kong police. Just a few days before this protest, there was another clash at the Legislative Council itself, Hong Kong's parliament, when the pro-Beijing camp attempted to take control of the floor, despite the pro-democracy camp having the majority in the last election. While technically the former pro-Beijing chair had the legal right to oversee the backlog of legislative material that had accumulated since the LegCo had been closed at the end of last year, the pro-democracy side felt that this was just a tactic to take control when the all-important national anthem law was due to be brought to the floor. As pro-democracy members proceeded to disrupt the meeting, security arrived to drag them out, with several members suffering injuries and one being hospitalised. When considered altogether, it seems that these two events signal an end to Beijing tolerance of any sort of dissension from Hong Kongers, whether members of parliament or ordinary people. As several outlets have published, China seems to be moving in the direction of completely disregarding the one country, two systems policy, which is only stoking further tensions. 
The action ramped up on Wednesday 27th of May when 360 people were detained and around 300 arrested in the afternoon in Hong Kong's central business district between Central and Causeway Bay. Some protesters were also in the Mongkok area outside the huge Langham Place Mall and down the main thoroughfare Nathan Road. The protesters were chanting slogans such as Hong Kong independence, the only way out and one nation, one Hong Kong. Police fired pepper balls, which is like pepper spray in a bullet form, detained people sometimes for a couple of hours before marching them onto police buses. Though the police raised flags and announced to protesters that they were in violation of congregation laws and would be dispersed, their actions have still been widely criticised. Amnesty International condemned the excessive use of force alongside some of Hong Kong's pro-democracy legislators. On Thursday 28th of May, when the proposed national anthem law was due to be debated in Parliament, pro-democracy legislator Ted Hui brought in a bag of decaying plants and threw them onto the floor of the LegCo, stating that he wanted the chairperson to, quote, feel the taste of the rotting system. The meeting was delayed as security forces cleared the building, fearing that the bag contained poisonous gases, and one member of Parliament was hospitalised after feeling sick from the smell. The meeting to vote on the proposed bill has now been moved to June 4th. How has the international community responded to the situation unfolding in Hong Kong? From what I've seen, there's been very little coverage in the news, for example in the UK or US, which have both been dominated by other issues closer to home and, naturally, the continued coronavirus situation. In general, the EU has expressed grave concern over the situation and said that they wanted to reach out to Beijing on the issue. But at the same time, EU foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell said, we will continue trying to put pressure on the China authorities in order to make them aware that this issue will affect the way we deal with some of the issues of mutual interest. But there is nothing more on the agenda. So basically, the EU is offering no help. Donald Trump announced that in light of Beijing's decision to essentially take away Hong Kong's autonomy, the US would, quote, take action to revoke Hong Kong's preferential treatment as a separate customs and travel territory from the rest of China, and would also impose sanctions for what he sees as the absolute smothering of Hong Kong's freedom. The announcement received heavy criticism from Beijing, as well as pro-Beijing legislators in Hong Kong, who claimed that the national security law was necessary to guarantee Hong Kong's status and was completely legal. Trump retorted by stating that the one country, two systems had basically devolved into one country, one system. This move has the potential to affect around 1,300 US firms operating in Hong Kong, as well as companies that have export, trade or business connections with US firms. It's unclear how this policy change will play out, or if Trump talks to Xi and changes his mind, but needless to say, this will probably only stoke further anger amongst Hong Kong citizens, especially those who work for US companies who may consider leaving the territory altogether. The only help that I've seen offered to Hong Kong citizens has been extended by Taiwan, another small territory under constant pressure from mainland China. Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen on Friday visited the bookstore of Lam Wing Ki. Lam Wing Ki is a Hong Kong bookseller who used to sell books in Causeway Bay and was one of a group of booksellers who were abducted by the Chinese mainland authorities for selling books to mainlanders that were banned in the mainland. 
He has since reopened his store in Taipei after it being released from interrogation. President Tsai said that Taiwan will provide, quote, whatever help it could to our Hong Kong friends. And the Taiwanese government announced that they would give residency to any Hong Kongers who had moved to the island in the past year. It's clear that Taiwan sees the situation in Hong Kong as a spectre of things to come, and so solidarity is clearly in the island nation's favour. It's always so funny to me that China lambasts anyone who even speaks about Chinese affairs, but always feels comfortable claiming authority over an independent nation with its own government, because their worldview sees it as a rogue province rather than a sovereign nation. But other than this response from Taiwan, it's clear that no one can really come to Hong Kong's aid, and that the small, semi-autonomous region stands alone as its freedoms are slowly eroded by Beijing. At the heart of these protests lies a simple desire. The desire for an independent Hong Kong. This desire, which was so strong last year that around 2 million people took to the streets to proclaim it, is in danger of fizzling out. The CCP has run out of patience for the Hong Kong people, who in its own media it castigates as a bunch of spoiled children who are ungrateful for everything that the mainland provides for them, like food and water, which would make its existence impossible otherwise. Between the coronavirus, lack of support from the international community, and a failing Hong Kong government that seems powerless to stop interference from Beijing, it seems that the dream of a free and independent Hong Kong is fading away. A lot of people see this as the beginning of the end for Hong Kong as we know it, and even protesters are losing hope, though they continue to fight against all odds and a seemingly increasingly harsh and arbitrary official reaction. According to an article in the New York Times, which hopefully I'll remember to include in the description, most protesters are now weary and filled with dread, worried that they'll become pawns in a power struggle between the US and China. Turnout for protests is well below what it was last year, as people are increasingly deterred by what they see as police brutality. Protesters have begun to delete their accounts on Telegram, a popular messaging app that was used to organise spontaneous protests in 2019, and searches for immigration have spiked in Hong Kong over the past few weeks. I'm not sure there was ever really a chance for Hong Kong to become fully independent. There's just no way that the CCP, if it was still in power at the time, would allow for that. But I did hope that, until 2047 at least, Hong Kong would remain somewhat like its former self, a free people with a unique mindset, able to determine their own laws, their own thoughts, and their own destiny even if just for a few more years. But now even I've lost hope in that. On May 29th, Carrie Lam, currently the very unpopular chief executive of Hong Kong, published a letter to Hong Kong in the Hong Kong Free Press online newspaper. I'll leave a link to the full thing in the description, but I just want to pull something out that she says for us to consider. She says, quote, Over the past year, the Hong Kong community has been traumatised. Violence by rioters has escalated, with illegal firearms and explosives posing a terrorist threat. The opposition forces and organisations advocating Hong Kong independence and self-determination have blatantly challenged the authority of the central authorities and the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region government. They've pleaded for interference in Hong Kong's affairs by external forces and even begged for sanctions against Hong Kong, and thus disregarding the interests of Hong Kong people and our country. Meanwhile, external forces have intensified their interference in Hong Kong's internal affairs, passed laws relating to Hong Kong, 
and flagrantly glorified the illegal acts of radicals, all of which seriously jeopardise our nation's sovereignty, security and development interests. Hong Kong has become a gaping hole in national security, and our city's prosperity and stability are at risk. Carrie Lam's language clearly frames the actions of protesters and other activists in light of the National Security Bill, as she pulls out words like terrorists, security, interference by external forces, and challenge to authority. She later adds that citizens will continue to enjoy the freedom of speech, press, assembly, demonstration, procession, and to enter or leave Hong Kong in accordance with the law. All relevant law enforcement will be conducted strictly in accordance with the law as well as statutory powers and procedures. I find the inclusion of freedom to leave and enter Hong Kong interesting, as I haven't even seen anyone bring that up as a potential problem, which signals to me that it's something that Beijing has been thinking about and is possibly on the table for changing later down the line. One should always pay attention to the wording of statements put out by the CCP. Freedoms of assembly, speech and press are promised in the Chinese constitution too, and, well, we all know how that's playing out so far. It's also worth mentioning that while there is rule of law in Hong Kong, there is no rule of law in China, as the CCP is the only governing and legislative power in the country. As Hong Kong integrates closer with China and the national security law allows for the mainland to establish law and enforcement bodies in Hong Kong, the idea of rule of law will no doubt be erased sooner than 2047. I think I'll leave it there for this episode. In the next episode on this topic, I want to talk a little bit about censorship in the media and why self-censorship in both Hong Kong and in the West is a huge problem when it comes to protecting the rights and freedoms not only of Hong Kongers, but for anyone who's ever enjoyed such freedoms. Thanks so much for listening, guys, and I hope you tune in next.